0: So it's really a privilege to be with you guys today. I've travelled literally thousands of miles from Colombia, especially to be with you. And I, I know, I know, you might be asking the question, "Why has he come all this way?" Because God whispered into my spirit that revive church needed a real, live, Hull person. <laughs> being that Hull is the UK city of culture for 2017. But simply being from Hull isn't really enough. It doesn't quite cut the mustard, does it? To be totally authentic, the speaker has to come from Ezel Rodley and be born and bred within one mile of the sound of Boulevard Baptist church bells. (laughs) Now, that would be me, sir. Now, I know you spiritually enlightened and incredibly well-educated, not to mention amazingly good-looking people here at Revive Church are used to hearing Pastor Jarrod's, posh, Welsh, Gibraltarian dialect. (laughs) But today, I hope you're willing to indulge me for about 40 minutes or so. Is that okay, Chris? This morning, I want to tell you a story that's really obsessed me for quite some time. It's a story of something that happened 3,000 years ago when the kingdom of Israel was in its infancy. And the name of the story is? The giant and the shepherd boy. How many people here today like 3,000-year-old stories? Not many of you, I suspect. But I I think you're going to like this one. But before I do that, I just want to inform anyone who's interested that there's a Columbia Childcare stand outside with some brochures on it. My lovely wife, Daryl Luce, would be willing to talk to you after the meeting, along with Carol Philipson, who's our UK office manager. So they're quite friendly, once you get to know them, don't be afraid. Just to tell you in brief that these past 12 months have been probably our most successful years with Columbia Childcare. Yeah. For example, we saw all our graduates from the various schools Gain incredibly high grades and go on to university. Studying diverse subjects as international business. uh, All the way through to environmental engineering. I have no clue what environmental engineering means. At present, we have as many as 2,000 kids who are involved with us on a daily basis in seven different projects along the Atlantic coast of Colombia. We provide education, Food and healthcare. We also have a football academ- academy, and um, providing that the children are Manchester United fans, <laughs> they can all attend the academy. I'm only joking, you Chelsea and Spurs and All City fans, okay? We also have an in house school for performing arts. You are now very passionate about arts and music in our schools. Many of our students come from homes with dirt floors and little in the way of sanitation. Initially, they dared to dream. And now for many, their dreams are becoming a reality. The expectation level of these kids has raised exponentially. I remember a few years ago when I was kind of listening to some kids talking. It was like, if we can just get through the school, perhaps we can get a job in the building trade. Perhaps we can clean the hotels. You know, because we've got many hotels in Santa Marta, where I live. And I think it was about three weeks ago, again, I'm kind of listening eavesdropping to some students speaking, and now it's like they're not talking about building sites or cleaning hotels. They're talking about university, and they're talking about becoming useful members of society. From that floor to university. Come on, guys, it doesn't get much better than that. Nelson Mandela said that education is like gold bunion to kids from underprivileged families, and I I agree with that. So the moral of the story could be if you're going to dream Revive Church, and you just talked about the building, your home, Chris, if you're going to dream, you've got to dream big just like our students have and will continue to do. I'm also a church planter. The church plants are really healthy and producing good fruit. In other words, the church plants are now actually... Uh, I believe good fruit is healthy. And from the oasis of Oak Church, which I planted, uh, we've now got the oasis of Amor or, or oasis of Love Church. So I've got about 150 in the Oasis of Hope Church, 70 in the uh, Oasis of uh, Love Church. So it just goes on and on. I've now got influence either directly or indirectly with eight churches on the Atlantic coast of Colombia, And I personally support four Colombian pastors on a monthly basis. All the churches are of the Assemblies of God. Who's ever read of the Assemblies of God? If you don't know who the Assemblies of God are, you you need to speak with Pastor Jared or or Pastor David or Chris. Chris is now an ordained minister with the Assemblies of God. So we're actually blood brothers now. Okay? And if that's not good enough, just talk to Marion about her Aspley Pentecostal church roots. Okay? And she'll tell you who the Assemblies of God are. In my 22 years on the mission field, Through various forms of evangelism, our ministry has literally seen thousands upon thousands of adults, young people, and children make decisions for Christ. Who can say amen to that? There in our little neck of the woods on the northeast corner of Columbia, God is being glorified. Right, back to the plot. This 3,000-year-old story takes place in an area called Sukkot in Judah, which was about 14 miles west of Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem in what is now Israel. The reason the story obsessed me is that I thought I understood it, and then I went back over it, and I realized that I didn't understand it at all. I needed God to give me revelation about this story. How many are looking for revelation at Revived Church this morning? Rich Dixon is, I can see that, and Linda, he just nodded. <laughs> Ancient Palestine had on its eastern border a mountain range and a coastal plain which ran along the Mediterranean where Tel Aviv is now. And connecting the mountain range with the coastal plain is an area called. Shefbali, which is really a series of valleys and ridges that run from east to west. Historically, in that region, Shefbali served a strategic function. Hostile armies on the coastal plain found their way up into the mountains and threatened those living in the immediate area below. The Philistines, who were Israel's biggest enemy, were living on the coastal plain. They were originally from Crete and were seafaring people, but by this time, they'd settled in the lowland. In this story, the the Philistines began to make their way through the valleys and up into the mountains because what they wanted to do was occupy the island near Bethlehem and split the kingdom of Israel in two. Divide and conquer was their strategy. What does the Bible say about divide and conquer? It says, house divided will fall. And I really believe that that's a word for someone in this assembly this morning. And the kingdom of Israel, which was ruled by King Saul, obviously catches wind of the enemy's intentions. And Saul brings his army to confront the Philistines in a place called the Valley of Elah. The Israelites dig in along the northern ridge, and the Philistines dig in along the southern ridge. And the two armies, with the valley in between them, just sit there for weeks and stare at each other. They're deadlocked. Is everybody still with me? They're deadlocked, these two armies. Neither can attack the other. Because to attack the other side, you've got to come down the mountain, into the valley, and then up the other side, where you would be completely exposed to attack. So finally, to break the deadlock, the Philistines send their mightiest warrior down into the valley floor. And he calls out and he says to the Israelites, send your bravest warrior down, and we'll add this out right now, just the two of us. This was a tradition in ancient warf- warfare called single-armed combat. It was a way of settling disputes without incurring the bloodshed of a major battle. We used to sort out disputes in the same way down as a road hole when I was a kid. <laughs> Bare fist fighting, toe to toe. I used to do that when I was a kid. And I can tell you, I never, ever won one of those fights. I don't think it happened down there nowadays because things have got a little bit nastier, haven't they? So the Philistine who was sent down is this mighty warrior, a giant of a man. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 17, 4, that the giant is more than nine feet tall. That's even taller than Rich Dixon, isn't it? He's fitted out head to toe in this glittering bronze armour. He's got a sword and he's got a, a javelin and he's got a spear. In other words, he's well tooled up, Chris. He is absolutely terrifying. He's so terrifying that none of the Israelite soldiers want to fight him. This giant of a man declares... I defy the armies of Israel this day. Send down a man that we may fight together. When Saul and the Israel army hear the words of the Philistine, the Bible says they were afraid and greatly dismayed. There's no way they think they can take this guy. He's just too big and he's too bad. And finally, the only person who comes forward is this young shepherd boy And he goes up to Saul and he says, I'll fight him. No problem. Bring it on. And Saul says, you can't fight him. That's ridiculous. You're just a kid. This is a mighty warrior who also happens to be like nine foot tall. Young people at Revive Church this morning, don't let them tell you you're too young. If you're good enough, and willing enough, and prepared enough, you're old enough. Okay? They told me I was too old in 1993. I went in front of this council of the assemblies of God, and they said, Look, you're too old to go to the mission field. You're just, you've been a merchant navy seaman, you've traveled all over the world. But guess what? You know, God had a plan and a purpose for my life. The shepherd boy is adamant. He says, no, no, you don't understand. I've been defending my flock of sheep against lions, bears, and wolves for years. I know I can do it. This uncircumcised Philistine who defies the army of the living God will be like one of the animals I killed before. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul is left with no choice but to allow the shepherd boy to fight. Otherwise, the stalemate could go on indefinitely. And at the same time, he would lose, lose face by not sending out someone to challenge the giant. The Bible says, Eliab... The shepherd boy's elder brother called him prideful and insolent on hearing that his baby brother was willing to fight the giant. Really, I suspect the truth is Eliab was extremely embarrassed and angry that not one of the army of Israel was prepared to fight the giant and his younger brother was. Such is life at times younger brothers, of which I am one, by the way. In my case, it's nine boys and two sisters. Down Ezell Road, back in the day, we had large families. Mind you, there was no distraction in those days, like Facebook, (laughs) Messenger, Whatsapp, Instagram, Skype, Twitter, smartphones, my face, your face, in my face. (laughs) They just had kids. (laughs) Lots of them. And guess what? The art of conversation was still alive and kicking. Hello? (laughs) King Saul knew that no one else had or would come forward to fight the giant because he and his entire army were frozen with fear. Have you ever been frozen? with fear. If you haven't, then you're a better man than me. Fear is a terrible thing to behold, and these men were very afraid. I remember when i just arrived in Colombia in 1999, I was in bed, and I was woken up by four men all around my bed. Four robbers all around my bed, perhaps is a very scary thing, in Branzome or Bilton Grange, but being woken up by four men in Columbia is a very, very scary thing indeed. Now, whilst I was at university here in Hull, I happened to study some psychology, okay guys? So, instead of being afraid and, and saying, take everything I've got, I decided to exercise some alternative psychology. So I started screaming and shouting, and guess what? All these four robbers ran. But the next thing I did was not one of the most intelligent things I've ever done in my life. I ran after them. (laughs) Dressed in just my boxer shorts. When I got to the bottom of the stairs, a scorpion bit me. Okay. Now, when a scorpion bites you, your tongue goes numb and you lose all the power in your legs and stuff like that. So I got outside, could see the robbers, but then I collapsed, okay? And eventually someone got me to the hospital, and they pumped me full of kind of medicines and injections, you know, uh, and I was traumatized for perhaps three or four days. But God is good, isn't he? He sent these ravens to feed me and to build me up, and and after four or five days, I was good. And then a couple of days later, I got a telephone call from this wonderful lady, a lady called Judy Grainer. Now, Judy Grainer, she is a PhD, not like Bill Kirby's PhD. She is a real PhD. And, and Judy is a very conservative lady indeed. Uh, Christianity has been in their family for over 200 years. How good's that? Uh, and Judy said, Dave, she never got excited, Judy, and you'd never see her excited. If she really got excited, Nigel, she'd raise her her heels about two inches like that or something. She said, Dave, I just had this vision. I thought, Judy Grayness, she's had a vision? Come on, tell me about it. She said, the vision was that you were chasing after the four robbers, right? And and at the precise moment that a robber was going to pull out a gun and shoot you, you collapsed on the floor, So I truly believe that God is in the business of providing protection for his missionaries. So King Saul turns to the kid and he says, All right, you can fight, but you've got to wear this armor. You can't go as you are. It will be a no contest. So he tries to give the shepherd boy his armor. And the boy says, no, I can't wear this stuff. The biblical verse found in 1 Samuel 17 says, I cannot wear this for I have not proved it. Meaning I've never worn armor before. My thinking is it says I can't wear it because it's restricting me from what I really have in mind. The armor and the state of the art weaponry wear the wrong fit for this shepherd boy. Have you ever felt that something is simply the wrong fit for you? My take is that the shepherd boy was simply pacifying King Saul by trying on the armor. After all, in biblical times, you, you didn't say you're not going to wear the king's armor. Uh, you just couldn't do that in biblical times. The shepherd boy knew from the get-go what, was going, what he was going to do he was going to use the same strategy that had always worked for him previously when taking down lions and bears. He had a plan and he knew with a third degree of certainty what the final outcome would be. Plan plus purpose almost always equals success. In other words, the shepherd boy had a clear mental image Of a preferred future. That's one definition of vision, by the way. Without vision, the boy would surely perish. So the shepherd boy reaches down onto the ground. And he picks up five smooth stones. And he puts them in his pouch. And he starts to walk down the mountainside to meet the giant in the valley below. And the giant sees this figure approaching and he calls out, Come to me so I can feed your flesh to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field. I think the giant meant business, don't you? The shepherd boy replied, You come to me with a sword, spear and javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied this day. And I believe that the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Hallelujah. The shepherd boy didn't say that. I just thought I'd had it. (laughs) And the shepherd boy draws closer and closer. And the giant sees that he's carrying a staff made of wood. That's all he's visibly carrying apart from his pouch. That's a man bag to you guys, okay? And according to all his scripture, the giant says... Am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? At that, the shepherd boy takes one of the stones out of his pouch, puts it in his sling and begins swinging it around and around and lets fly. And it's the giant right between the eyes in his most vulnerable spot. And he falls to the ground, either dead or unconscious. And the shepherd boy runs up and he takes the giant's sword. Remember, guys, he who lives by the sword shall perish by the sword. And he cuts off the giant's head. And when the Philistine, uh, Philistine army see this, they turn and run for their lives with the army of Israel in pursuit. Something suddenly seems to have changed in the mindset of the army of Israel. They've moved from, like, frozen with fear to, hey, guys, we won, didn't we? Let's go and get them. And, of course, the name of the giant is Goliath. And the name of the shepherd boy is David. And the reason that story has obsessed me is that everything that I thought that I knew about the story turned out to be, shall we say, open to debate. Allow me to explain. So David, in this story, is supposed to be the underdog, right? In fact, that term, David and Goliath, has entered our language as a metaphor for improbable victories by some weak party over someone far stronger ever since biblical times and still continues today. We use terminology like uh, he's a giant killer. It's a David and Goliath scenario, etc., etc. But why do we call David an underdog? Well, we call him an underdog because he's perceived as this kid, a little kid. And Goliath is this big, strong, giant of a man. We also call him an underdog because Goliath is an experienced warrior And David is just a shepherd. After all, shepherds are not stereotypically seen as giant killers, right? But mostly, we call David an underdog because it appeared to be a total mismatch on big fight day. Goliath is fitted out with all this modern weaponry, the glittering coat of armor, a sword, a javelin, a spear. And all David has is a sling and five small stones concealed in his pouch. Well, let's start with the phrase, all David has is a sling, because that's the first mistake that we make. Okay, guys? In ancient warfare, there are three kinds of warriors. Number one, there's cavalry, who are men on horseback or with chariots. Number two, there's infantry, who are foot soldiers armed with swords and shields and some kind of armour. And finally, there's artillery. In those days, the artillery are either archers or, more importantly in this case, slingers. Okay? A slinger is someone who has a pouch with two long cords attached to it. And they put a projectile, either a stone Or a lead ball inside the pouch. And they whirl it around. And they let go of one of the cords. With the objective of sending the projectile forward towards its target. Are you still with me? That's what David has. And it's important to understand. That this sling is not a child's toy. That you can purchase from Toys R Us. It's a real weapon everyone say real weapon. real weapon it's in fact an incredibly devastating weapon when david rolls it around and around he's turning the sling around probably at 6 or 7 revolutions per second and that means that when the stone is released it's going forward at a tremendous speed probably 35 meters per second that's substantially faster than a cricket ball sent down by even the quickest of bowlers. Before I left the mission field, left for the mission field in 1995, I played cock, uh, cricket for Cottingham Cricket Club. Okay? And I was an opening batsman. And I faced some extremely fast bowlers. And I know from exper- experience. When the cricket ball hit your body, it was like a bullet hitting you. I still have the bruises to prove it. <laughs> Moreover, the stones in the Valley of Ela were not normal stones. Apparently, they were barium sulphate, which are twice the density of normal stones. If you do the calculations on the ballistics, on the stopping power of a stone, fired from David's sling, it's roughly equal to the stopping power of a .45 caliber handgun. Are you beginning to get the picture? This is an incredibly devastating weapon. And we know from historical records that slingers, experienced slingers, and David was, could hit and maim or even kill a target at distances of up to 200 yards from medieval tapestries we know that slingers were capable of hitting birds in flight in the book of Judges chapter 20 verse 16 it says that slingers were so accurate they could split an air with one single shot well they couldn't split mine or Chris's could they but let's not go there So we're talking about amazing accuracy. When David lines up, and he was nowhere near 200 yards away from Goliath, he's much closer than that, probably less than 20 yards from his target. When he lines up and fires that stone at Goliath, he has every intention and every expectation of being able to hit Goliath at his most vulnerable spot between his eyes. Preparation. Planning and previous practice are the key here to his success. Preparation, planning, and previous practice. Just remember all the Ps, and you're good to go. If you go back over history of ancient warfare, you will find time and time again that slingers were the decisive factor. The X factor, no less against infantry in one kind of battle or another. David was the right man, in the right place, doing the right thing at the right time. In other words, David was the dude. So what was Goliath then? He was heavy infantry. And his expectation when he challenges the Israelites to a duel is that he's going to be fighting another heavy infantryman in hand-to-hand combat, no less. When he says, come to me, that I might feed your flesh to the birds and the heavens and the beasts of the field, the key phrase is, come to me. Come to me, because we're going to fight hand-to-hand, face-to-face, just like they did down Ezra Road back in the day. And in this format, the giant was the greatest, unbeatable, invincible. He was the Muhammad Ali of his day. King Saul had the same expectation that Goliath was invincible. David says, I want to fight Goliath. And Saul tries to give him his armor because Saul is thinking when you say fight Goliath, you mean fight him hand-to-hand combat, infantry on infantry. But David had a totally different plan. He was never going to fight Goliath Antoine. Why would he? He's just this rosy red-cheeked, handsome shepherd boy. Just a kid. David looked even younger than Pastor Jared did when he left Kingdom Faith Ministries back in the day. And now we're talking young, aren't we? David spent his entire career using a sling to defend his flock against lions, bears and wolves. That's where his strength lies. That's what he does best. That was his day job. So here he is, this shepherd boy, experienced in the use of a devastating weapon, up against these lumbering giants, weighed down by hundreds of pounds of armor and these incredibly heavy weapons that really are only used in short-range combat. Goliath, my friends, was a sitting duck. In David's eyes, it's already a done deal. Goliath didn't stand a chance. It was a no-brainer. The bookies would have stopped all bets. Goliath simply couldn't win. So stop calling David an an underdog because he wasn't. David had a vision and a plan. All he needed was the opportunity to execute it. How many are waiting on God this morning? Perhaps they've had a vision. If you've had a vision, you need to tell Pastor Jared or one of the other pastors all about it because they're the people of God who have elected to be authority in your life. And they need to know about it. When I was at university in May 1991, I had a dream. Okay, how many believe in dreams this morning? Dreams and visions. In this dream, I was actually coming in, in the clouds, over the northern tip of South America, which incorporates the countries of Venezuela, Colombia and Ecuador. And and, and in this dream, I saw masses and masses of storm clouds gathering And and I woke up and I immediately knew that Colombia was the country of my destiny. Guess what I did the next day? I went and told Pastor David all about it. We need to tell the people who who have spiritual authority in our lives all about the things that God is communicating with us. So the slaying of Goliath was the vehicle God used to catapult or forgive the pun, to sling David into his, into his destiny. Amen? God knew, even before the beginning of creation, that David would defeat this uncircumcised and ungodly Philistine and eventually become the king of Israel. The outcome beggars belief, doesn't it, guys? As does large parts of the Bible, until we dig a bit deeper a prophetic word for you today and I know at Revived Church you all love prophetic words don't you my prophetic word today is read your Bible Amen. God knows all about us he knows where we've been he knows where we are now and most importantly, he knows our futures. It's been said, and I know from personal experience, that it's not so important how we start this journey of life, but it's very important how we finish it, guys. Amen. So we're going to fin- finish strong at Revived Church, right? Yes. Jeremiah 29:11 says, "For I know the plans I have for you," declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not arm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. How many believe that this morning? Your future is guaranteed when you place your trust in the eternal God and not in the things of this temporal world. Reading your Bible first up is far more important than turning on your computer and reading your email and Facebook messages. How many can say meant to that? (laughs) Let me share with you a second piece of information that we need to ponder on regarding this morning's story. It's not just that we misunderstood David's role, strategy, and personal choice of weaponry. We also profoundly misunderstood Goliath too. Goliath was not what he seemed to be. Okay? Do you know anyone like that? Someone who possibly looks and sounds like a saint inside the church or in the workplace, but outside the church's four walls, uh, they act in a totally different way. An interesting anomaly to ponder on. And at my age, I'm into pondering and considering the lily. Okay, I'm not like I was a few years ago, Marion. Okay. There's all kinds of pointers or clues as to why Goliath was not what he seemed to be. Things that in retrospect seem quite puzzling and don't square with his image as this invincible, mighty warrior. To begin with, the Bible says that Goliath is led onto the valley floor by an attendant. The attendant's called a shield-bearer. Using a shield-bearer would give some validity as to why Goliath needed to be escorted that day. But there's other theories. Is this mighty warrior challenging the Israelites to one-on-one combat? Why is he, theoretically, being led by the hand, by some shield-bearer? Presumably to the very, very point of combat. Secondly, the Bible story makes special note of how slowly Goliath moves. An odd thing to say when you're describing the mightiest warrior known to man at that time. Okay, admittedly, he's laden down by his weaponry. But Bible scholars still point out his apparent slowness. And then there's this whole thing about how long it takes Goliath to to act Uh, to react to the sight of David. So David's coming down the mountain towards Goliath, who's waiting on the valley floor, and David's clearly not prepared for hand-to-hand combat. There is nothing about him that says, I am about to to fight you hand-to-hand, infantry on infantry. He's not even carrying a sword. Why does Goliath not react to that earlier? It's as if he's oblivious to what's going on. And there's that strange comment that he makes to David as David draws closer. Am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? Sticks? David only had one stick, and that was his staff. Well, it turns out that there's been a great deal of speculation within the medical community about whether there was something fundamentally wrong with Goliath. For example, there's been several articles written in well-respected medical journals that started a chain of speculation regarding an explanation for Goliath's height. So Goliath is head and shoulders above all of his peers in that era. Nine foot tall. And usually when someone is that far out of the norm, there's a reason why. The most common form of giantism is a condition called acromegaly. Everyone say acromegaly. Well, I'm in a good mood, so I'll give you 6 out of 10 for that. Okay. Acromegaly is caused by a benign tumor on the pituitary gland that causes an overproduction of human growth hormone. And throughout history, many of the most famous giants have all had this particular condition. The tallest person, medically recorded, was a guy named Robert Wadlow. Robert was still growing when he died at the age of 24. He was almost nine foot tall and he was inflicted with this condition. So anyone who's unusually tall, and we're not talking about Rich Dixon now, he's not that tall, he's only about seven foot five. (laughs) That's the first explanation the medical profession normally come up with. Also, this particular condition has a very distinct set of side effects associated with it, principally having to do with poor vision. The pituitary tumour as it grows, often starts to compress the visual nerves in the brain with the result that people with acromegaly have either double vision or they are profoundly short-sighted. So when people have started to speculate about what might have been wrong with Goliath, they said, wait a minute. This guy looks and sounds awful, uh, an awfully lot like someone with this infirmity. In actual fact, scholars have also discovered that another member of Goliath's family is recorded as having six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Another commonality amongst acromegaly sufferers. So, a picture is beginning to take shape, which would explain so much of what was strange about Goliath's behavior that day. Why does he move so slowly and have to be escorted onto the valley floor? Why is he so strangely oblivious uh, to David that he doesn't understand that David's not going to fight hand to hand? In all probability, it was simply because he couldn't see him. It's as simple as that. Come to me that I might feed your flesh to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field. The phrase, come to me, is a major hint of his short-sightedness and the key to his vulnerability. Come to me, because I can't see you. And then there's, am I a dog, that you should come to me with sticks, plural. He sees two sticks when David only has one. That's surely slurred or double vision. So the Israelites on the mountain ridge looking down on Goliath thought he was this invincible warrior. What they didn't understand was that the very thing, what was the source of his apparent strength was also the source of his greatest weakness. Goliath was doomed to die that day by the hand of David. Friends, the God of Abraham, Isaac, And Jacob was with David that day, not with Goliath, the Philistine. The God who knew and knows the beginning from the the end of this story knows the beginning from the end of your story too. How many are willing to put their trust in that God?